0: Welcome back, everyone, to the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and we're going to dive into that 38-10 to beatdown that the 49ers gave to Arizona in Mexico City last night. We're going to talk what McCaffrey's impact has been on the team, in especially for one Jimmy Garoppolo, and then look ahead... To this upcoming week's showdown at home in San Francisco, or Santa Clara actually, against the New Orleans Saints. In our plus section, we're going to talk Odell Beckham Jr., where he may go and what he may bring a team between now and the end of the season, the quarterback issues with the New York Giants and New York Jets, little World Cup discussion, especially the no beer in Qatar, oh no. Uh, gonna detail my overseas trip to London this past week and then conclude with making week 12 NFL picks. But like always, let's start with the 49ers and let's jump right in. Let's talk Niners. So I'll admit I did not see the final score being 38 to 10. I, I expected a much closer game, regardless of whether it was Kyler Murray or Colt McCoy at quarterback. I thought the Cardinals would put up a little bit more of a fight, and I didn't think San Francisco would be nearly as explosive as they were, but I'll take the 38-10 to 10 win any day of the week. And looking at stats and yards, so total yards, 387-314 to 314 for San Francisco. Turnovers, San Francisco got two interceptions, none for the Cardinals. First downs, 21-19 to 19 in favor of San Francisco, and the Cardinals actually had a two-minute advantage in time of possession. Quarterbacks, Jimmy G, 20 of 29, that's 69% completion rate, 228 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions, no sacks, an extremely clean and really good game by Jimmy. Colt McCoy, 24 for 34, 218 yards, one interception, and he was sacked three times. Running the ball, Elijah Mitchell again led the way, nine rushes for 59 yards. McCaffrey, seven rushes for 39 yards. And Debo Samuel chipped in three rushes for 37 yards and a touchdown as a team, 28 rushes, 159 yards and one score. John Connor for uh, the Cardinals, 14 rushes for 42 yards and a touchdown as a team, 24 for 67 and one score. That's under three yards a carry. So good job by the Niners. Rush defense receiving. Definitely wanted to get Kittle a little bit more involved coming off of last game. Four receptions, 84 yards, and two touchdowns. Christian McCaffrey, seven receptions for 67 yards. Debo Samuel, seven for 57. And Brandon Ayuk two receptions for 20 yards, both resulting in touchdowns. For the Cardinals, wide receiver Greg Dortch, nine for 103 yards. Uh, And Hopkins went nine for 91. Top graded players, per. Per pro football focus on offense, tackle Trent Williams, tight end George Kittle, running back Elijah Mitchell, guard Daniel Brunskill, who's again rotating in with Spencer Burford for half the game, and Christian McCaffrey on defense, defensive end and tackle Charles amenahu linebacker Dre Greenlaw, cornerback De- D'Amador Lenore, defensive tackle T.Y. McGill, who San Francisco elevated from the practice squad for this game, and linebacker Aziz Alshire. So, diving into some thoughts on the game that first quarter man that started out that started out slow and we're hearing you know Joe Buck and Troy, e- Troy Aikman wax poetic about how many playmakers the 49ers have and it's an embarrassment of riches and Shanahan wants to get everybody the ball and they're not moving the ball and they're not scoring and I'm sitting there thinking all right they got all these weapons where are they and this ne- this wasn't necessarily the announcer jinx Like what happens on field goals when they say, oh, this kicker hasn't missed a field goal all season, and they'll promptly go ahead and miss a field goal. The the offense just started slow, and maybe some of that had to do with the rain. Remember, it was raining basically for all of the first quarter down in Mexico City, and then it tapered off and stopped. But no points scored. Arizona had a field goal on their second drive, so San Francisco found themselves down 3-0 to start. But then the offense started getting in gear, scoring 17 points in the second quarter and 21 more points in the second half. So again, that uh, false narrative or that perceptual narrative of San Francisco um, starting out fast with Kyle Shanahan's scripted plays generally happens, did not happen this game, and the perception that they are a poor or low-scoring team in the second half They bucked that trend again this week, putting up three touchdowns. When it comes to offensive touches, so Elijah Mitchell had nine overall all runs. Christian McCaffrey had 14 total, seven runs, seven receptions. Debo Samuel, seven receptions, three runs. Kittle, four receptions, and Ayuk, two receptions. No one else caught a pass. No Jawan Jennings, no Ray McLeod, no backup tight ends caught a catch. Surprise, surprise. And defensively, this is the third straight game where the defense pitched a shutout of points in the second half. and this is maybe more importantly, the third straight game where this team walked away injury free. No new injuries or significant injuries to report. We saw in the first quarter, Charvarius Ward uh, taking a knee, looked like maybe just he needed a breath or some oxygen. I guess all that training in in Colorado Springs for the week uh, didn't help San Francisco all that much. I I wonder how long you need to be in Mexico city to really acclimate to the altitude. You're talking about a mile and a half above sea level. Um, that obviously has, you know, a lot to do, you know, respiratory system also on the eyes as well. When I was in Denver many years ago, traveling, my eyes were drying out like crazy contact lenses. I'm sure that was the least of a football player's concern, but dehydration, Cramping. Uh, you saw Debo Samuel a couple times on the sideline, getting the massage gun to his hamstring and, and calves. Um, and I don't know if they, if they had left and, and been in Mexico city since, you know, Wednesday or Thursday, would that have helped or mattered? I don't know. It didn't seem like Arizona had as much issue with the altitude. I don't think the altitude was the reason why they didn't want to tackle at the end of the game. I just think that they unfortunately gave up or fortunately for San Francisco and 49er fans, but to come away injury free. So, beyond the Charvarius Ward oxygen need or rest, there was a slight scare with Dre Greenlaw toward the end of the game. I think it was either the, the beginning of the fourth quarter or end of the third quarter, where he made a tackle. He was grabbing his wrist. And, and being a 49er fan for as long as I have been, or at least the past five to seven years, what they've dealt with with injuries, my mind immediately went to broken wrist, but it seems like he was okay, which. Was big, because again, they they this is the, another game where they missed three of their four starting defensive linemen. Javon Kinlaw, Eric Armstead out, and Samson Ebucom was questionable with a quad injury in his leg. Did not play, which is one of the reasons why they elevated T.Y. McGill from the practice squad. But I mentioned earlier, Kyler Murray um, did not play, dealing with a hamstring injury. Colt McCoy, one of the best backups in the league. I mean, is there a drop-off? Of course, especially when you're talking about the mobility element that Kyler Murray brings. But this is the first time the Cardinals lost a game with Colt McCoy subbing in for Kyler Murray. Would Murray have made a difference? Yes, he would have extended some of the drives for the Cardinals. His mobility and his running would have been an issue for the defensive line. It would have tired out uh, Bosa and company. It would have tired out Murray to a certain degree, but not as much, you know, he's 210 pounds, not as much as a 300 pounder or 270 pounder, but I don't think it would have made the difference in terms of how efficient San Francisco is and how much they really controlled the Cardinals offense outside of those first couple drives where DeAndre Hopkins at receiver was really getting anything that he wanted. He had, I think, seven receptions in the first half, only two in the second half. Uh, There there would have been a, a bit more offense or sustained drives, I think, from from Murray, if for no other reason than just keeping drives alive with his legs. And defensively, Jimmy Ward and rookie Samuel Womack both got interceptions. Ward was a deflection. Again, he's still still playing the nickel, which they got away, away with it this week between DeAndre Hopkins being a little bit banged up, still had a really good game. Marquise Hollywood Brown was on IR. They did not activate him. And um, Moore, their third receiver, Rondale Moore, who actually picked up in fantasy on one of my teams just in case DeAndre Hopkins couldn't play, got wound, wound up getting hurt on the first or second possession. He wound up taking an end around or a jet sweep, got tackled, hurt his groin, did not come back in. So they were down two of their th- top three receivers. Greg Dortch, I mentioned, had a pretty good game for them. A.J. Green had a handful of receptions, but, but is really at this point in his career a non-factor or at least just a big-bodied red zone threat. So the secondary did its job. But something just want to go back to about Samuel Womack. You know, rookie fifth-round pick out of Toledo, had a good preseason, looked like he won the nickel job. But then as the, as the first couple seasons, the games of the season, excuse me, progressed, Diamandor Lenore jumped into the nickel. Uh, Then Emmanuel Mosley tears his ACL against Carolina. Lenore moves to the outside. Jimmy Ward heals, coming off of IR and uh, becomes the nickel cornerback. And I said last week um, that you want to always get your best 11 players on the field. I don't think he is one of the best 11 players if he's lined up in the slot. There's something about Womack, even though he's a rookie, that feels like he has a veteran savvy to him on special teams. Um, He's made a couple great special teams. His awareness of where he is on the field, where the goal line is when he's trying to save um, balls from, from going into the end zone and really saving his team you know, 15-plus yards in field position. And even at the end of the game, he intercepted a... Um, it wasn't a Colt McCoy pass. It was, I think, a, a McSorley pass in the end zone. He caught it and immediately knelt down, which is the smart play. A, lo- a lot of players, rookie or otherwise, will get that interception, and they'll start running. They'll want the glory of... Running back an interception, maybe not for a touchdown, but 10, 15, 20 yards for a return. He had the wherewithal, pick, let me get down. No need to run it out. No need to get hurt. No need to cause a fumble. And I think he is sticky enough in coverage where the Niners play a lot of zones. So they're not, they're not being asked to play man. But he can, I think, run with most receivers. He's got long arms. He's not basically the same size as Jimmy Ward, but he has he has a, a greater wingspan. I think at this point in his career, quicker feet, and probably just a faster overall player, because because Ward is, I think, 31 years old and Womack is a rookie. I think what Ward lacks in in speed and physical attributes at this point, he makes up for in his own veteran savvy and awareness. But just something I'm just curious moving forward. I mean, Tayshawn Gibson has, it looks like, the starting free safety spot locked down. When Ward is on the field, you're technically playing three safeties, right? Even though he is playing in the nickel. I'm just wondering when it comes to, and you saw Ward couldn't do it against the Chiefs and he had, I mean, they couldn't cover anybody against the Chiefs. It wasn't just Jimmy Ward's fault. But even against the Rams and the Chargers, you know, he was getting getting lost in the wash on some of these crossing passes. Not to say that Samuel Womack is the answer, but I would, again, just be curious to see what, what he can do. Um, should he be called upon? Should Tayshawn Gibson have to miss a game? Ward goes back to his natural free safety position, or even if, if Tao Nohu Funga misses a game, Ward could play strong safety as well. So it's nice to have depth, even though they, at the nickel position at safety, even though they lost Emmanuel Mosley as the outside corner. Now I mentioned at the top that I just wanted to talk about that the impact that McCaffrey has made since his arrival on the team, but especially for Jimmy Garoppolo. Now before I get into that, in case anybody hasn't seen it, and, and maybe a lot of you haven't, just because I'm... All over Niner stuff, you know, during the week and even at night. But there was a funny Twitter video last week before this game. So after they beat the Chargers on Sunday night, a couple of the 49er players were at a Golden State Warriors basketball game. They were sitting courtside, so front row. And the four players were Christian McCaffrey, Jimmy Garoppolo, George Kittle, and fullback Kyle Juszczyk. And you saw in that was a 30 second video that the Golden State Warriors cheerleaders were going up to the 49ers on the floor seats, but only going up to Jimmy Garoppolo and went to shake his hand. And there might have been seven or eight of them. What's funny was from left to right, it was McCaffrey first, then Garoppolo, then Kittle, then Juszczyk. They completely ignored McCaffrey 100%. 100%. And it's not like Christian McCaffrey's a bad looking guy. It's just, I guess, that Jimmy Garoppolo is that much better looking. Um, but they just went up to him. Uh, I don't know. They they probably, I think they maybe had a couple words for, for Kittle and, and Juszczyk as they were making their way past the 49ers players. But it was funny because, you know, George Kittle afterwards, I was just reading an article saying like, yeah, like we were, we were busting McCaffrey's chops. They didn't say anything to him. They didn't really talk to to myself or, or Kyle Juszczyk. But mm-hmm. They're starting to think that he he said, well, you know, Kittle said, I'm married, Juszczyk is married, Christian McCaffrey's got a girlfriend. He's like, I don't think any of these cheerleaders know that, but we just, we just want to think that to feel better about ourselves. And they all know Jimmy's single, and they all know how good-looking Jimmy is. He's like, and I always tell people when I'm at, this is Kittle talking still, so when I'm at an event, whether it's a fundraiser or whatever, if you want to not be bothered and not be noticed, just sit next to Jimmy. And Kittle's got the right personality for it, but beyond that, I mean, I think it's good to see you know, and this stat was only, I think, McCaffrey's second or third week with the team. And he's already out with the, with some of the other offensive skill players, whether it's the quarterback, the tight end, the, the fullback, um, at a Golden State Warriors game. And the last thing that Kittle did say about that, and he, he's not trying to downplay the Jimmy thing at all. Apparently, the cheerleaders that went up to Jimmy, he said, I wouldn't call them elderly, but they weren't the normal young ish you know golden state cheerleaders that would be wearing like skirts or whatever he's like they were the the older cheerleaders um and again he's, he's just trying to like i guess bust Jimmy's chops but you know jimmy jimmy gets all the attention off the off the field or off the court basketball i guess cuz uh cuz of his looks but on the field he's making more noise because of how he's playing and if we go back to the chiefs game even though they got blown out The offense kind of did its part. You know, they could have got another touchdown to make the blowout just look less like a blowout. But the first game, McCaffrey was with the team. Again, he only had about 20 snaps. Jimmy was 25 of 37, 303 yards, two touchdowns and a pick. The next game, McCaffrey against the Rams. That was at LA. McCaffrey had his three touchdowns. Jimmy was 21 of 25, 235 yards and two touchdowns. Last Sunday night against the Chargers, 19 of 28 for 240 yards, should have had a touchdown that hit Brandon Ayuk in the hands in the end zone, dropped, but as it stands, no scores. And last night against Arizona, 20 of 29, 228 yards and four touchdowns. Over that four-game span, Jimmy is completing over 70% of his passes. For any quarterback that is an ungodly, st- so think of uh, seven out of every 10 passes he's completing. Very efficient. Only one interception the past four games for the season. Jimmy has 15 touchdowns and four interceptions. If you extrapolate that out, he might be in the neighborhood of 27, 28 touchdowns, 7 to 10 interceptions. That's a good season for, for Jimmy. That's a good season for a Shanahan quarterback. Again, they're not asked to throw a ton. Those last four games, the most he threw was 37 times because they got down big in the fourth quarter against the Chiefs. Otherwise, the Rams, 25 attempts. The Chargers, 28. Arizona, 29. He's going to be in that 25 to 30 range generally, which is probably going to be in the bottom half of the league (coughs) or bottom third of the league when it comes to attempts. But that's just the way that Shanahan runs the offense. For McCaffrey, these four games, he has average. Remember, that first game, he did not play that much. So his numbers in general, maybe skew a little bit higher the next couple of weeks, but he has averaged 12 rushes for 52 yards a game plus five receptions for 46 yards per game. So 17 touches on average, 98 yards of total offense. In addition to what he provides as a decoy, a threat that defenses have to account for, it's it's made a big impact. But now I go back to how McCaffrey-centric or dependent on McCaffrey is this offense going to be moving forward? Meaning, if he misses a game, are there not going to be nearly as many checkdowns from Jimmy to a running back, or are there are not going to be any? Think back to the games before McCaffrey joined the team. Running backs may be caught two passes a game, maybe three. McCaffrey's averaging five, so you're talking about close to double for that one player versus if it was Wilson, I mean, Mitchell hadn't played since the first game, uh, Tevin Coleman, he's on the practice squad. McCaffrey, other than his throwing touchdown and catching in the, the, the touchdown he caught against the Rams, he hasn't done anything spectacular in terms of running routes that should preclude any other running back from doing that swing passes out of the backfield, Texas routes, where if he comes out to the right, he fakes right and goes in left. If he's on the left-hand side, fakes out left and goes in right. Yes, I understand the number on his jersey and the name on the back of his jersey shows and means that he is a a top-five running back. He is super talented, but he is not... And he has great vision and feet, I get it. But he is not running crazy, complex routes, routes that other receivers can run I just want to make sure that because McCaffrey does have an injury history you know knock on wood he's healthy the rest of the way that should he miss some time another running back if it is Mitchell now if it is Ty Davis Price or Jordan Mason rookie out of Georgia Tech finally got four carries in garbage time if they bring Tevin Coleman up from the practice squad that they can emulate somewhat or even if it's fullback Kyle Juszczyk that they don't lose that aspect of the offense because I think it's It feels like it's definitely a safety valve for Jimmy. And he's not forcing as many passes if he knows he has an easier pass to go to. And you can see, sometimes McCaffrey is the first read out of the backfield. But usually, he finds his way to McCaffrey after he goes through his other reads, whether it's Kittle, Juszczyk, Ayuk, or Debo. And you see a couple times where he's looked around then he's dumped it off and he picks up four or five yards. To me, that's almost the equivalent of if Trey Lance is the quarterback next year. The scramble that Trey Lance could provide, nothing's there. It's the four or five yard dump down to McCaffrey. Maybe the Lance equivalent is also a four or five yard run to make it second and manageable versus second and 10 or some of the times when Jimmy was forcing throws into coverage. Again, he only has four interceptions on the year. He's The Niners are six and four. He's played nine games, four interceptions. You could say, okay, maybe he's had another four that might have been picked. He had one last night that might have been picked on a comeback to Ayuk. Ayuk slipped. The corner slipped as well and Ayuk still was able to bat the ball away. So the impact that McCaffrey has, I don't think can be understated because he is that good of a player, but again, and he's great in the open field and space. But again, I don't think if McCaffrey comes out of the game or should have to miss a game or whatever, that someone else can't step in and run those routes. Maybe they run those don't run those routes as well, but it should be a viable passing option moving forward if McCaffrey's not on the field. But now, and, and just to kind of close that loop, the third round picks in the past two drafts San Francisco has spent on running backs do not fit the McCaffrey mold. Two years ago, Trey Sermon, third round pick out of Ohio State, they traded, or they released him, I'm sorry, earlier on this year, he was claimed by the Philadelphia Eagles, and this season, in the third round, they drafted Ty Davis Price out of LSU, and he's built of the same mold as Trey Sermon, more of a bigger physical back, a thumper, going to get you the hopefully the the, the, tough, the difficult yardage in between the tackles, but not a receiving threat. So now my question is, if you're looking for a McCaffrey-type player, which is why they tried to sign Jarek McKinnon, who's now with the Chiefs, as a free agent a couple years ago, immediately tore his ACL, missed multiple years, it's clear that Kyle knows what he wants or what what he thinks is one of the catalysts that can make this offense go, and it's a pass-catching running back. They've had multiple drafts. In the the past two drafts, they haven't drafted a pass-catching running back. You are not going to get a Christian McCaffrey in the third round. In the sixth round, they got Elijah Mitchell, and and he can, he's shown that he can catch some passes. You're not going to find anything close to a Christian McCaffrey in any one of these drafts. I get it, or in free agency. But the fact that you're choosing running backs that don't have hands at all or have shown no ability in college to catch more than, I think, uh, Trey Sermon's best year catching passes was 12 passes, and I think Ty Davis Price was at 15. They played 12 games in college. That's one catch per game. Again, you're not gonna you're not gonna find or draft the quality of a McCaffrey, but that's not to say you can't find and do research and and find running backs that are used in a more dual threat role or draft a receiver and put him in that running back role. You could find a 200, 210-pound receiver, maybe even if they're six feet tall, but they have good hands, convert them to a a running back or someone that can play a hybrid role. Again, you're not going to find a Debo Samuel type player. It's just curious. Kyle has, has swung twice spending big money on McK- on McKinnon spending multiple draft picks on McCaffrey and, and big money on McCaffrey. Although They're going to rework that deal in the off season. I'm sure. But in between, they haven't tried to fill that void with a running back that has hands. Doesn't seem like it should be that hard to find. But apparently, it is. So now let's look ahead to this upcoming weekend's game against the New Orleans Saints. The Saints are 4-7, and seven, a team that's been dealing with a good number of injuries, just as the Niners have. Uh, star wide receiver Michael Thomas uh, it, it re-injured his foot. He was out most of last year, if not all of last year. Um, he is on IR. They have a QB toss-up between Jameis Winston, who got hurt, Andy Dalton stepped in. He's still playing. Led the Saints uh, to win over the Rams last week in New Orleans to get them to four and seven. Uh, a little bit better offensively than you may think. So overall, they're ranked tenth overall on offense, seventh for passing, 15 rushing, and points scored. They're 15th in the league. On defense, um, thought they'd be a little bit better considering the talent that they have on that side of the ball, but they're 12th overall, they're 8th against the pass, 27th against the rush, and 25th in points allowed. Their turnover differential is worst in the league at minus 12. San Francisco is middle of the pack at minus 1, which is surprising since Jimmy has only thrown... Four interceptions, but they have put the ball on the ground a number of times, and they haven't gotten as many turnovers as you would hope that such a such a top dominant top three defense um would would get. Now, I mentioned they beat the Rams last week 27 to 20. As a team this year, the Saints are one and three on the road. Their lone win coming week one at Atlanta, 27 to 26 otherwise they lost at the Panthers 22 to 14 they lost at Arizona 42 to 34 and most recently at Pittsburgh 20 to 10 so not exactly road warriors and the teams that they lost to are all teams that are below 500 and that's where the Saints are they are a below 500 team i mentioned Andy Dalton at quarterback He's really assumed the reins from Jameis Winston, who really isn't complaining, but isn't happy about the fact that he lost his job due to injury, and generally that does not happen in sports, and it's not like Dalton is playing so well that he has saved the Saints season. I mean, they're 4-7. and But on the year, Andy Dalton has thrown for 1,819 yards, 14 touchdowns with 7 interceptions, Alvin Kamara, um, a dual threat running back, very much like Christian McCaffrey, he's rushed for 511 yards and one touchdown, and he has caught 43 passes for 385 yards and two scores. The nice surprise for them has been rookie Chris Olave out of Ohio State. He leads the team in Michael Thomas' absence, or even probably with Michael Thomas if he would have been healthy. Leads the team in receiving 51 receptions, 750 yards, and three touchdowns, having a very nice rookie year. They still have Jarvis Landry, the Wiley veteran, um, has been banged up a bit throughout his career, even uh, with New Orleans, but did come back and had a pretty good game against the Rams. And tight end Jawan Johnson has been a nice find. He's scored touchdowns in the last three games. Been nice enough that I actually picked him up for my fantasy team, and may need to start him because I also have Darren Waller and Kyle Pitts who are both on IR so that's fantastic. I think this is a team that really can't hurt San Francisco offensively all that much. <clears throat> San Francisco's really good against the run. They should be able to bottle up uh Alvin Kamara and again, they're a middling offense running the ball 15th and points, you know, they're they're middle of the pack 15th as well. They have weapons to do some damage between Kamara and Olave, Jarvis Landry, Johnson, as I mentioned. But I think, I think San Francisco can hold down or suppress those weapons. I think they can put a lot of pressure on Andy Dalton, force him into some decisions. He's, in, in many ways, the redheaded version of Jimmy Garoppolo. He'll get flustered with pressure. He'll make throws that you're wondering, what is he doing? I mean, he had a nice early start to his career in Cincinnati, leading some explosive offenses with with he and A.J. Green. you know Now he's in his mid, mid-30s, um, a little bit different. He's bounced around the league. He was a backup for Dallas for a bit. Um, and this New Orleans team does not look remotely the same with Dennis Allen as head coach than when Sean Payton was there. Um, I, I don't know what folks thought that there was not going to be a drop-off, but when you go from Sean Payton as coach and offensive play caller to Dennis Allen, who was a failure as a coach, with the Raiders, and did a decent job as a defensive coordinator. Again, I'm still a big believer that in, in 2022 and moving forward, the league is so geared towards offense, your head coach needs to be an offensive mind. They don't have that. They're struggling. I think this is a game that the Niners win 27-16. to 16. And if so, improve their record to 7-4, and four. and no matter what the Seahawks do, and hopefully they lose to the Raiders... Uh, San Francisco will still remain atop the NFC West with a tiebreaker with a head-to-head win over the Seahawks. So that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Just about 30 minutes on the button, but stay right here. We're going to get into the plus section. We're going to talk Odell Beckham, uh, where he may end up and what he might bring to a team. The Jets and the Giants. We're going to talk World Cup, some briefly, in Qatar. We're going to talk about my trip to London in case folks have not been to London. And then conclude by making Week 12 picks. So, stay right here. It's plus time! Welcome back. And, as I mentioned, let's start the plus section off talking about Odell Beckham Jr. So, he's been in the news recently um, saying that he's weighing his options and reportedly it's down to two teams that he is interested in and the the feeling is mutual. The New York Giants, although i find it hard for him to go back there, and the Dallas Cowboys. And owner Jerry Jones has made no bones about the Cowboys wanting Odell. Jones has always been about making the big splash signing. And Odell has said in the past that he would like to play for the Cowboys. Now let's go back from a health standpoint, to where Beckham is, so he tore his ACL during the Super Bowl against the Bengals. That was on February 13th of this year, 2022. He had surgery on February 22nd. So he is nine months removed, almost to the day, from surgery. Now this is this is an injury that everyone says it takes at least a year to come back from, and at least into your second year to feel all the way back. And this is the second time Beckham has torn an ACL in a knee. In the Super Bowl, he tore it in his right knee. In 2020, he tore his ACL in his left knee when he was with the Browns. He had surgery November 10th of 2020, and his first game back was September 26th. Of 2021. So that's about 10 and a half months. So I'm not sure what teams are going to get when they get Beckham. Whoever gets Beckham, it's going to happen after Thanksgiving. It may be the week after Thanksgiving or the week after that. He's probably going to want a multi year deal with a decent amount of money. I can't see him playing on a one year prove it deal with any of these teams. I mean, this. Might be his last chance to get a big money contract, and I think it's going to wind up to me being Dallas. I think he can, for lack of a better phrase, con Jerry Jones and the Cowboys into giving him a bigger deal if he uses the Giants' leverage. There was some talk about the Bills, maybe the Chiefs. San Francisco was floated out there. The Rams are not a possibility anymore just because they are terrible. I think if I'm coming back from an ACL and I had that surgery, granted his rehab is much more intensive than than my or any layperson's is. I don't know if I'd want to play in cold weather. You know, like that knee is going to be achy and sore. Um, It's going to be painful. You know, those first couple games to get everything under him. Playing in Dallas, indoors. Uh, now there may be some road games. I don't know the, the Cowboys' schedule, but. Playing in blistering cold in Buffalo for whatever home games they have left. Same with Kansas City. San Francisco will be a warm weather location, but I just don't think San Francisco is looking to upset the apple Car. even though he would be an upgrade at the number three wide receiver position over Jawan Jennings or Danny Gray, basically Jawan Jennings. I just don't see him going there. I think he's probably going to view Dallas as his best chance to get to another Super Bowl. And... You know, when I mentioned what are what are they going to get out of him, so since 2018, when he was healthy in 18 and 19, he had a 1,000-yard season, a, a hair over 1,000 yards, nothing explosive. Since then, he has averaged 55 receptions for 735 yards and four and a half touchdowns a game. That's including those 2,000-yard seasons in 2018, 2019. The year, last year when he was traded... Or released, I guess. It was released from the Browns, and he signed with the Rams. Through six games with the Rams. Now, this is coming off of an ACL. Through six games, he had 17 receptions for 232 yards. Got released, went to the Rams, was there for eight games, not concluding playoff, just regular season. Eight games, 27 receptions, 305 yards, and five touchdowns. So 14 games, again, post-ACL, 44 receptions for 537 yards and five scores. Again, coming off of an injury, but not exactly setting the world on fire. It is a difficult injury to come back from. But the way I'm viewing Odell now, and yes, there are teams that need wide receiver help, and he's the highest profile name on the market. But beyond him, you have names like an Antonio Brown. No one's going to touch him. He's radioactive. Will Fuller, Ty Hilton, Chris Connolly, Mohamed Sanu, John Ross, Marcus Johnson, Tavon Austin. It's not exactly an appealing looking crop, but I mean, for me, I think Will Fuller, even for San Francisco or a team looking for a receiver, I think he's 29 years old, um, vertical threat, good hands. I think he would fit in well with with a number of teams, including Dallas. And, And he might be a better receiver right now than Odell Beckham is. But like anything else, Odell's gonna get signed on talent, of course, but name value. And whatever that name value carries over into games, putting, quote-unquote, fear into defensive backs, defenses, defensive coordinators, whatever. But the way I look at it is, given what's available now, and I'm going to go back to my early 20s, my bar days, going to bars. Odell is the below-average-looking girl left at the bar at last call when the bar closes. They flick the lights, they turn the lights on, you see who's left, and you're like, ah, she's not great, but I guess guess she'll do. From a talent standpoint, he is much better than a he'll do. I just don't know, coming off this injury, what he has left to give right now. And there's always been this flirtation of talent with Odell. And I think the other way you can look at him is, He could also be the really hot girl at the bar that doesn't put out. That's just absolutely going to tease you, but she's gorgeous to look at and might be nice on your arm walking out of the bar and walking home. But when when you get home, you realize it's just a disappointment. Now, (laughs) switching gears to from Odell and what he is or isn't, but I do expect expect him to sign with the Cowboys. To one of his former teams and the two New York teams, and, and we're leading in. This is Thanksgiving week. There may be some uh, local Giants and Jet fans listening to this podcast. And I just want to say to those fans be thankful. It's Thanksgiving week, right? Be thankful for where your teams are now. The Giants are seven and three, the Jets are six and four, respectively. Be thankful for that soft early schedule that's putting you in position to make a playoff run. I don't think either team is going to make a division run. You guys can if there are any Giants or Jets fans, you can hold on to that delusion. Neither one of those teams are going to be winning the division, but a wild card is really within reach. But I want to break down these two teams and show that, you know, it's really smoke and mirrors, it's fool's gold. They're not nearly as good as as fans want to believe. Um, but they're going to be teams that if they make the playoffs and they, they lose their first round game, fans and sports talk is going to be in an uproar because that's just what fans and sports talk do. Now let's just look at the Giants first. So overall offensively they're 17th in the league 28th passing offense fourth rushing saquon barkley is having a phenomenal year i have him on one of my fantasy leagues thank you very much and they do get some running out of daniel jones at the quarterback position points allowed or points scored rather 21st so bottom third of the league defensively very pedestrian as well overall they're the 17th best defense 15th best pass defense 25th against the run and 13 against points score. Their turnover differential is plus one. So they're in the in the positives, right, right in the, the 12 to 15 range in the league. Unfortunately, though, what this team has outside of Saquon Barkley is one of the worst collection of skill players in the league. Unfortunately, they lost Sterling Shepard to IR early in the season at receiver. Rookie receiver Wandale Robinson, who was having a, a relatively nice rookie year, he's on IR. Kenny Galladay is just stealing money at this point. He is trash, and it's leaving Darius Slayton as your number one option at receiver. Daniel Bellinger is the tight end. Saquon Barkley again he's having he's a, having a Pro Bowl season at running back. But I think teams like Detroit last week are learning if you can take Saquon away and make Daniel Jones beat you, they're they're not going to they're not going to beat you, and and they're not going to win as many games as as maybe fans are thinking. Looking back on their wins, they won at Tennessee Week 1, which is almost like a coin flip game. It's Week 1. All teams are kind of feeling themselves out. They don't have their identities. And they won that game on a two-point conversion late in the game. Actually, all their wins have been one-score games. They won at home against Carolina, Chicago. They went to London and beat Green Bay. Those are three very bad teams. They beat Baltimore at home. Again, a late... A late win, a really bad decision by um, Lamar Jackson throwing an interception return late when they could have maybe milked the clock. They won at Jacksonville, bad team. And they won at home against Houston, very bad team. And they sh- they struggled somewhat in that game. Their losses at, da- or loss at home for Dallas, at Detroit, two good teams. I'm sorry, at Seattle, two good teams. And at home this pay- past weekend against Detroit. And what do they have upcoming? So, so they're three losses. They lost to they, they can't beat good teams. And again, I don't count Tennessee at the beginning of the season. If they play it again, it could be a different totally different game. They lost to Detroit, and Detroit's got a good offense, but a bad defense. And all of their wins have been one score games. At some point, there's something called regression to the mean, which means they are not gonna their wins, their one-score games are outliers. They're not gonna keep winning those games. They're just frankly not a good enough team to keep winning those games. And listen. Kudos to the coaching staff for getting those wins. They have the team believing. I don't want to say they're getting the most out of Daniel Jones because he had a better season his rookie season than he's having this season. But they're making the most with what they have. To me, it's just not going to be good enough moving forward because they're playing this week, Thanksgiving Day, at Dallas. They're going to get annihilated. Then they have Washington at home, Philadelphia at home, at Washington, at Minnesota, the Colts at home, and at Philadelphia. Realistically, they can win... They might just win two of those games. They could realistically lose all of those games. But Let's be let's be not even conservative, let's be generous and say they win 3 games. That gets them to 10 and 7. 10 and 7's a wild card team. They're going to be in the playoffs. Again, be thankful for that fast start cuz it's going to be a bit of a slow finish and they're going to be crawling into the playoffs and I don't think I think every team any team in the league that's going to win win their division outside of the Eagles who might win, take get the bye, the first round bye. They're going to want to see the Giants in the first round. The Giants are not a threat to beat anybody in the in the playoffs um, on the road. It's just it's just not going to happen, unfortunately. But good first season by Brian Dable. Maybe they can build off of that. They're going to have a big question mark coming up, though. What do you do with Daniel, Daniel Jones? They declined his fifth year option. He's a free agent. Hit the numbers this year for him 1937 passing yards, 65%. That, that's pretty good. Nine touchdowns. And four interceptions. Nine touchdowns through ten games. You can do the math. That's less than one touchdown a game. Running is where he adds value. 76 rushes for 437 yards and four scores. Now I think the problem the Giants are going to run into is they'll probably resign him. The Giants have $59 million in cap space next year in 2023. That's the fourth most in the league. They're going to overpay for Daniel Jones and they don't need to. No one is going to give Daniel no one should give Daniel Jones more than I don't I don't know. 20 million dollars a year. The Giants will probably give him 25-27 to keep him in New York. And they'll say like, "Well, we have the money, we kind of have to spend it. They need to get more weapons." You could put Daniel Jones on the back burner. I don't think he's going to be a hot commodity or you can offer you can lowball him. offer him 15 million dollars. Just to keep him around, negotiate, and then if you settle in the $20 million range, fine. I'm still not sure he's worth it. And you could tell me, well, you know, um, certain quarterbacks, it's a quarterback-driven league. They're going to make a certain amount of money. Yeah, that's great, but that doesn't mean you have to be willing to pay. Deshaun Watson for the Browns got a fully guaranteed deal for the Browns when he was traded from the Texans. But that was almost, the Texans almost held them hostage. Or the Browns were held hostage by the fact that they haven't had a good quarterback since Bernie Kosar in in the 80s. So they did whatever it took to get Deshaun Watson, include including giving draft pick compensation to the Browns. But that pissed a lot of owners off. And owners are are openly colluding to never give a fully guaranteed deal again to a quarterback. It just should, at least for that duration. Kirk Cousins has gotten like three-year deals for 70 million or 75 million, but 75 million and 238 million or whatever the hell he got what Deshaun Watson got is is a world of difference. Is Daniel Jones the answer? I don't know. Is it illogical to think that he could improve next year with another year in the system and more weapons around him? I think that's very logical to think that. I just think the, the Giants have to be careful not to spend a lot of money on a quarterback who really hasn't shown much and is just kind of average. Now, the Jets... The Jets, we're gonna, we'll dive into a little bit as well. So offensively, overall, they're 28th, 25th passing, 20th rushing, and 22nd points, which is just funny because listening to Sports Talk Radio here, everyone raves about all the weapons that the Jets have. Really? I mean, I guess they have weapons, and it's just the quarterback that's holding them back, and we're going to get into that. Defensively, they're a top 10 unit. I don't know if you want to say they're elite. People have been throwing that word around close to it. Overall, 8th on defense, 10th against the pass, ninth against the rush, ninth in points allowed in their turnover differential, just like the Giants, is plus 1. But going back to the talent, is it really that good, or is it just that good comparatively to what the Jets have been trotting out the past 5 to 10 years? So at receiver, you have Corey Davis, Garrett Wilson, um, the rookie from Ohio State, the grumpy Duo of Denzel Mims and Elijah Moore. Tyler Conklin at tight end. Brees Hall was a nice addition at running back. He blew his ACL out. Michael Carter at running back now. And they traded for James uh, Robinson from the Jaguars a few weeks ago. So let's look at their wins. They're 6-4. and They won at Cleveland. At Pittsburgh. Again, record-wise, two bad teams. They beat Miami. That's a nice win. At Green Bay. At Denver. Again, two bad, tough places to play, but bad teams. And they beat Buffalo most recently. Again, good win. So they're, they're good against the AFC East, kind of, and they beat everybody else, other teams too, but they're just, they were just bad teams. They lost against Baltimore at home, Cincinnati at home, New England at home, and New England on the road. You see a trend there? Their four losses were against winning teams. Now, they beat two winning teams also, but they've, four of their six wins are against bad teams. Two good AFC East wins, four losses to all good teams. Now, what do they have upcoming? They have Chicago at home and Justin Fields may not play. That's a very winnable game for them at Minnesota at Buffalo tough at home for Detroit and Jacksonville two winnable games at Seattle at Miami tough. So and I mentioned this to it to a a friend who's a Jets fan, not even seeing their schedule, just kind of making an off the cuff statement. I thought they would finish at nine and eight. And I think looking at the the schedule that they have left, I think they're going to win their home games. I think they're probably going to lose all their away games. 9-8 and might be good enough to get them into the playoffs. Miami or Buffalo is going to win the East. What's going to really hurt them is the fact that they got swept by New England. So New England, if they end up with the same record, New England has the tiebreaker over them. Beyond that, it's just the Bengals and the Chargers that might be uh, searching for wildcard spots. Because the Chiefs are running away with that division. The Raiders are bad. The Broncos are bad. Tennessee is going to win their division. The other teams are bad. Baltimore is going to probably win their division. Uh, Bengals will get a wild card, or maybe they sneak out the division. Pittsburgh and Cleveland are bad. So the Jets are going to be fighting with, what is it I say, three or four other teams for three spots. Nine wins might get them there. Maybe getting to 10 would be what puts them over the edge, but those away games are are really tough. And head coach Robert Sala, a couple days ago, might have been yesterday, has come out and he said he is not committing to Zach Wilson as the quarterback moving forward and looking at Zach Wilson's stats and play. And if you watch check games, it's hard to disagree with, with coach Salah under 1300 yards, 55 and a half percent completion percentage. Anything under 60 is not good Four touchdowns and five interceptions. That's abysmal. What's scary is it mirrors in a way his stats from last year. 2,300 yards, 55.5% completion percentage, nine touchdowns, 11 interceptions. It does not look like he has taken a step. And that is scary because that was accuracy was his issue coming out of BYU. Now, backup quarterbacks, Mike White and Joe Flacco, if those are, if Mike White and Joe Flacco are the answer, I'm not sure I generally know what the question is, but in this case we do. And the question is, is Zach Wilson good enough right now? it's no and his rookie receiver Garrett Wilson came out didn't specifically mention Garrett will um Zach Wilson by name but just said basically this, this shit ain't good enough on offense and i don't think they like the fact that Zach Wilson did not take any accountability in the loss i think he was asked straight up you know do you feel like you're pulling your weight um offensively, or, or do you think there's any blame that, that needs scoring for the offense? And he said no, or, or he said yes to the first question. I don't remember, but basically he was not saying, as a leader of the team, and a quarterback is almost the, always the de facto leader of the team, he's got to come out and say, I, I can do more. I need to do more. And he's not doing that. And it's unfortunate. Um, is he the most talented of the three quarterbacks on the roster? Yes. Could Mike White or Zach or, or Joe Flacco play worse than him? It's theoretically possible, but if I had to bet something substantial, at least maybe for one week against the Bears, they look better. And the Bears are not playing good defense. This is the quandary Robert Salah is going to be in right now. Do you leave Zach Wilson as the starter? They're playing a bad defense. Maybe he gets some confidence going into Minnesota and then Buffalo. Or do you say, we need a win? Chicago's a bad defense. Justin Fields, a quarterback may not play. Mike White or Joe Flacco is like a one game stopper. And if they play really well, it could be beyond one game. Can he get us to seven and four to keep our season afloat? Cause we got a, a tough, tough schedule coming up. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. And this is, this is a Jimmy G watch spot. Is Jimmy G an option in the off season? I think so. So you have Robert Sala, former 49 defensive coordinator you have Mike McDaniels there as the offensive core. I'm sorry, uh one of the one of the I'm forgetting his name, but someone that was on the 49ers staff is the offensive coordinator for the Jets. Jimmy, you can't tell me Jimmy G is not a better quarterback than Zach Wilson. He I, I thought he was a better quarterback last year, beginning of this year, and it's just proven out. Uh the Jets want to run the ball. They like to run the ball. They have a nice offensive line, they have some nice skill position players. Jimmy G in New York City, that's that's like a match made in heaven. It could be a good landing spot for him. Now, just for Jimmy is I, I would love for him to be back with San Francisco. I think quarterback, I've said it before, quarterback is the most important position in sports. I don't care about controversy with Trey. I don't care about who's looking over whose shoulder. I don't care about any drama that the media is going to invite and sports talk. I think they have, Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch have created a great locker room and culture. And And if Jimmy Jimmy loves the team, loves the culture, and he comes back with the same sort of deal, six and a half million, and you can compete for the starting job, and he's okay with being a backup and coming in and make more money if Trey gets hurt or doesn't perform, who knows? Jimmy might be a creature of comfort, or he goes to a team like the Jets, and granted they're six and four this year, but you don't know what they're going to be next year. Hell, the Rams won the Super Bowl last year; they're three and seven. They're trash. They were trash before Cooper Cup got hurt. Does Jimmy want to stay on a team and have a potential to go to the playoffs every year and win, but maybe not play, or play and go to a team like the Jets that have historically been bad? Maybe they're turning it around, and there's other teams that are probably going to be suitors for him as well. And that's that's a podcast for um, for another day. But again, Giants and Jet fans, be thankful for seven and three and six and four. Quick start, fast start is going to help them with this difficult schedule coming up. You're just not, these teams are just not as good as their record. And that's okay. You, they don't have to apologize to me or anybody else. Just don't be pounding your chest about playoffs and like, the Giants might be the worst 7-3 and team in the history of the NFL. I'm not saying that because I'm anti-New York or anything like that. Just objectively speaking, they might be the worst 7-3 and team in the history of the NFL. But they don't care. Brian Dable doesn't care. Giant fans don't care. Just get him into the playoffs. It's been a lot better than what they've experienced for the past five plus years. And same with the Jets. They could be an ugly six and four or have an ugly offense. But if they can keep eking out wins and get to nine or ten wins, they'll be in the playoffs. Probably not going to win a game, but just not apologize to anyone. And it's a step in the right direction as both Robert Sol and Brian Dable build those programs and build that culture. So switching gears now, let's go a little international with the World Cup kicking off in Qatar. Uh, as I'm sure many of you know, Qatar is a conservative Muslim nation that historically or, or has a law that there are there's no alcohol permitted at sporting events. So what wound up happening was in the days leading up to the kickoff of the World Cup, it was announced by the government of Qatar, that there would be no alcohol at the soccer matches. Now, what's interesting or confusing to me about this is whatever discussions FIFA and Budweiser had with the government or the overseeing body, the fact that this wasn't agreed to months in advance is surprising. And they were waiting to hear what the government would decide in the day or two leading up to the beginning of the World Cup. It's just strange that you don't get that in writing sooner, knowing how much how much of a presence Budweiser is going to have, how much of an ad spend. And advertising, you're still getting advertising out of it, whether people are drinking beer or not. Maybe they're actually going to remember your advertising since they're actually not getting, not getting loaded. But I thought it was actually funny that the FIFA president, the soccer president, was asked about it, and he, his response essentially was, If you can't last three hours watching a soccer match without a beer, I don't know what to tell you. And I think I kind of have the same opinion. I think this should have been decided well in advance to give everybody, alcoholics and non-alcoholics alike, time to recalibrate their brain for what their World Cup experience is going to be. And I'm not sure how rowdy an international... Crowd gets at soccer games, whether it's in Europe or World Cup games, South America, etc. But I, I think they're still better than Philadelphia fans, because those are just the lowest of the low when it comes to intoxication, booing. Remember, they threw snowballs at Santa Claus. They cheered when Cowboys receiver Michael Irvin was carted off with a back injury, and they thought that he might have been paralyzed Um, but regardless, it's the biggest event in the world. And I think you can do without alcohol for three hours, but they will have beer. So for you, you know, alcoholics, semi-alcoholics, people that just love beer, if you're there and I doubt anyone in Qatar is listening, but if you're there, Bud is serving alcohol free beer. So if you're someone who just likes the taste of beer, and needs to drink a beer while watching a sporting event because ultimately you people are just machines for turning beer into piss. You have, but you have uh, alcohol-free beer. And we found out yesterday what Budweiser is going to do with all that great beer that they brought to Qatar. It's going to be donated to the winning country of the World Cup. So then, whoever it is, I have no idea. You know, you could have like a big, big party there, get blitz, and whoever country wins it. And everybody will black out and have no recollection of what wound up happening. But you know, listen, World Cup kicking off. It's exciting. A lot more soccer fans in the US now than there was, let's say, 10 or 20 years ago, since given MLS and just the uh increased popularity of of soccer in the United States, it's fun to watch. Like we you know what, what countries are are gonna be good between Portugal and Germany, Spain, England, and then obviously some of the some of the underdogs. Uh, like Saudi Arabia, I think they beat Argentina yesterday, one, nothing or something in, in some, in a very shocking game. So it'll listen, it'll be great. The U S is in it. We don't expect them really to go all that far. Um, but it will be nice for them to get out of their group, out of group play <coughs> and into the round of 16. Uh, but we shall, we shall see, but enjoy, it's going to be on for, for the next couple of weeks. And, and it is an event It only comes around every four years, but sticking on the international theme. So I traveled for work, to London for some meetings and a workshop with, with my clients. I was there for three nights one night, if you count the overnight flight from the uh, airport to to London. And I have to say, if no one's been to London, very, very impressed. Um, clean, big city, a lot of old architecture, even just kind of driving through London, going or driving from. The hotel I stayed at, which is actually at the airport, and I'll get into that in a second, driving through East London, getting into Central London, where, you know, we had dinner one night, and then I went out exploring into different neighborhoods. It's, I think, in a way, everything I want New York City to be, but it's just not. Um, I'm not anti-New York City. I I think for my money, it's a bit overrated, like the self-proclaimed greatest city in the world, that That's all great. I think from, I haven't been to every corner of New York City, just like I wasn't to every corner of London, but the comparable amounts of New York and London that I've seen, I'll take London 10 out of 10 times. Um, but I'll get there in a second. just want to go back to, so it started uh, in an ominous sort of way. So when I landed and I asked um, the taxi driver to send me to the airport, or to send me to take me to the Sheridan, they took me to a Sheridan. Wasn't the right Sheridan. And who would have thought that there are two Sheridans on the same road a mile apart? So I had to get back in a taxi. Go to the next Sheridan. Now the taxis at the airport are interesting. And I I don't fly enough internationally to know if this is something that's common. But it's just not like in the United States. Here's the comparison I'm going to give. Do you remember the movie Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger? When he goes to Mars and he is in what they're calling a Johnny Cab. Which is basically, it was a, it's a... Almost like a mini, a small van that had like multiple seats on the back end portion. And in the front was like a robot driver. That's what the cabs were at, at London Heathrow Airport. The driver was human. It wasn't a robot. But it wasn't normal seating like you would have in a cab in New York City. Everything was kind of open. The seats flipped down. There were places to hold on to. And you're not talking about the size of like a large SUV. It was almost like a conditioned smaller van that was just kind of scaled down to maybe fit like three or four people kind of in the back, almost like a, like a bus you would get at Disney, uh, the way that that, that a tram, the way that that kind of seating is, um, but in bus format. So I, I thought, I thought of, if nothing else, kind of that, that was interesting. Um, I don't know if this is a, a British or English kind of thing or custom, but what I noticed in the bathroom One, the tubs were about two and a half feet off the ground. So getting into and out of the bathtub to shower was an adventure, especially if you didn't have there wasn't anything to kind of grab onto to not slip, especially coming out. So that was that was an adventure. And they either the hotel, I can't say the country, but the hotel did not have any washcloths. So I didn't, you know, I don't bring my own bar soap when I travel. I bring body wash, and they had body wash there. So I guess. People are forced to spread body wash with their hands on their body, which for someone like me who's Italian and has like a decent amount of body hair, that was fine because the, the body wash suds up in the body hair pretty nicely. But if you're like a clean shaven person or, you know, I don't know, another nationality that doesn't have body hair, you're going to be using that whole tub of body wash because that 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 stuff wasn't spreading. But thankfully, at least the body hair kind of helped out. So one of the things that I kind of noticed um, traveling, so the first night we took um, an Uber into London from our hotel, again, just was about 10 minutes outside the airport. Stupidly, we went rush hour, left at 5.30, got to our restaurant at 7.30. So two hours in an Uber. At least it wasn't a taxi that you were timed, but it was still like a decent, decently priced Uber. The stoplights there are interesting because like in the US, if it's, If the light's green, it goes from green to yellow, then red. But if the light's red, it goes from red, then to yellow, then to green. I don't know how I feel about that, especially the way people drive aggressively, not only in New York City, but I live in the Northeast, so we just have a bunch of asshole drivers here. But if you get that warning or heads up that the red light is turning yellow, you're going to have people jumping the light. They're going to want to get a head start on the green light. Then you have people that are going the other direction. The, the light's going from green to yellow to red. They're trying to beat the yellow. They're trying to beat the red. And I can just see accidents happening. Hopefully, you're able to follow that. I just thought it was, I thought it was interesting, but not something that I would adopt um, here. Was able to uh, ride the subway that they call the Tube. Was able to ride, uh, take a train. From Heathrow Airport to one of the neighborhoods called um, Paddington, just to kind of walk around and explore. The train, I think, is somewhat new, absolutely gorgeous, and just easy to get from the ho- the airport to Paddington Station. Then I kind of walked around. Then from there, I took the tube from Paddington Station to um, some of the more kind of touristy areas of London, basically the London's answer to um, Times Square, which is Oxford Circus and Piccadilly Circus. The tube was really easy to navigate, except for the fact that I couldn't, I couldn't find my way out. And one thing I will say about British people overall, or at least the ones that I met, super nice. So it kind of goes back to that. Remember National Lampoon's European Vacation, um, Chevy Chase and the Griswolds, kind of driving around London, and they keep hitting the same person on a bike with their car, and the person was like, "Oh, no problem, I'll get it fixed." Or you know, he broke his arm. Oh, no problem. It's just a, it's just a scratch. I'll go to the hospital just like that always pleasant British person I can't I can't say that I saw that but people that I anybody that I asked a question to people were coming up proactively in the subway downtown area because I couldn't get out and I, I must have looked like lost so two people came up to me and said are you okay what, what do you need and, and one person pointed me in the wrong direction because basically there were where I was there were escalators that were coming down from the, from the street level. And it was saying, no exit, because the escalators were going down. You couldn't get back up. And then when you walked to the other side, the escalators on the other side were going down as well. The first person didn't help me out. The second person, when I looked, I guess maybe even more lost, said, you know, what's the problem? Like, I I don't know how to get out of here. And she's like, oh, you have to – there's like kind of like a dividing wall where the subway is. You have to not not leave the subway area and, and go down like a main hallway like you would do in Penn Station or somewhere in New York City. You kind of have to like hug the wall where the subway, the, the, the train actually is or the subway actually is. And then that's where your exit was. So I didn't know that, but at least people were very helpful to kind of <coughs> get me there. Um, ate at an English pub for the second. The first night we ate at a, sta- a steakhouse, which is a little bit more touristy, ate with a couple colleagues. That was cool. Walked around. Again, architecture is was just beautiful. So it was old mixed with new um, people kind of walking the streets. And, no, it almost felt like Mardi Gras or at least um, Bourbon Street in New Orleans. And that's just kind of one street. There were just multiple streets where there were cars, but people were walking down the street. Um, the, the, the alleyways were, were very quaint. Um, nothing looked dark or dangerous or anything that I saw. And the buildings even there just looked like something out of 200 years ago. And I think I'm I'm just a big fan of that, um, and it's something that we don't have um, here all that much. But second night, ate at an Eng, uh, at an English pub, wound up just getting a, a burger, uh, had to try one of their ales, some fries. Everybody there was kind of nice and helpful. People were asking me where I was from. I was sitting by myself watching soccer, and they were also watching darts, which that was interesting, I guess, to say. And then across the street, so I go all the way to London – to play video games, there was an arcade, retro arcade bar. And they have those in the States, in New York City, it's called Barcode. But went downstairs, got I think 10, 10 bucks, you know, got 15 co- tokens, which maybe allowed me to play 15 games, played some uh, Dig Dug, some Street Fighter 2, uh, they had a Star Wars game there, played some pinball, some shooting games, uh, then just in, in had some alcohol while I was there. Um, and every, and people people there at the arcade were nice too. I forget, too, though. I don't know what the legal drinking age is in London, but I'm walking around there. I probably was the oldest one there, being 44. There was definitely probably some sub-20-year-olds there. Uh, but as long as I didn't look like the creepy, you know, that old guy that's at a bar or club, and you know, like, all right, dude, your time has passed. You got to go home. I think the fact that I was playing video games and, and doing relatively well at, Sh- at Street Fighter 2 um, maybe helped the matter. Um, one of the things that was funny was, even though the pound is is 1.2 times the dollar, meaning... In essence, everything is 20% more expensive there. When I was driving around in a couple of taxis and Ubers, I said, "Well, they were complaining about the price of stuff," and I said, "Well, you know, at least at least gas is cheap because you know gas at home by me is is 3.85 a gallon. Here, I saw like a dollar 65 or, or 165 pounds. Even with the even with the conversion of 20% more, you're still making out." He's, and the response was, "Which again, metric system? Uh, yeah, that's not gallons, that's liters." So there's over three liters in a gallon. So whatever that number is, you have to multiply it by three. So $1.65 per liter of gas would be almost $5 a gallon in the states. And there are places that are probably still close to $5 a gallon. And that was London City proper or just outside by the airport. So was not good at math there. Um, the one thing, though, you know, kind of I will say between between a city like London, and I, I've I've only traveled internationally one other place. I've been to Germany. I wasn't in, we I landed in Frankfurt but didn't explore Frankfurt. I was in a smaller city called Mainz and that was kind of your what you imagine like what a German city would be either now if if you're if like my mind yours works that you just think oh German cities they they don't have suburbs and they're not modern and but it was that Quaint German architecture, cobblestone roads, the city almost looked like a village more than an actual, like a city or a suburb in the U.S. And I think that was one of the things that I took away from from London is when I, being there, everything is on brands. Like when you are in London, England, you know you're in un- London, England from the red double-decker buses, from the red telephone booths, which I'm not even sure if they're in service anymore, but I took a picture of them from the architecture the people are super proactive and nice the names of bars and and pubs and places to eat locations like when you're on the subway at first off the subway was i don't want to say immaculate but super clean the seats were fabric like and there nothing was ripped and i took multiple subway lines to get to and from where i needed to be versus what you would see in like a new york city you know graffiti everywhere it has that stale air smell, whether down below in the subway or even on the trains themselves. New Jersey Transit from New Jersey to, to New York is also a shit show. Um, but everything is on brand in England. The the areas, like I, I went from the airport to the area of Paddington and they had the houses almost like if, if anyone else has watched like the, pa- the Harry Potter films where the houses are stacked next to each other, almost connecting, which I guess the American equivalent would be like a duplex um, but it just it has that British look. When I was in Germany, it has that German look, and I'm sure things in Italy have an Italian look, in Japan, in China, etc. Um, and America has a very American look, and I think, or or more of a generic look. And I guess not to get off like on a tangent, but you know, I was thinking about this on on the plane ride home. Um, America is a country formed by immigrants from many other nations, so people were bringing their customs, their lifestyles here from colonial days through until, you know, the industrial period and and, and cities and metropolitan areas started to get, you know, built up. But everything had or has more of a very generic vibe. There aren't many areas in America where you feel like you're in history or you're mixing old with the new. I know Rome is a city you could be walking down, there could be a, a broken down, building from ancient Rome right next to a skyscraper or you still have the Coliseum there, the U S outside of maybe like the Washington DC and the monuments and stuff. Um, maybe in Boston, some areas of Boston, maybe in some areas of Philadelphia. Um, you know, once you get to the West coast, like, I, I mean, I've been to San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, Seattle, Denver, Miami, Philly, Boston, New York, uh, Houston, Dallas. I mean, these are all areas that that are just kind of there. And someone that I used to work with used to call it like the United States, United States of generica when it comes to either like whether it was strip malls or houses. Um, there's something nice when you travel overseas that, you know, you are overseas and you're almost immersed in the culture. Now, I was in, in England, so there was no language barrier, but just how the street signs looked and and the buildings and the food and how people conversed. And there are similarities, of course. Um, But I think the differences of like knowing you're in London um, versus how a bigger city, a New York City here feels. Uh, Again, not anti-New York, not anti-American. You have to be careful nowadays. When you say something negative, people are gonna throw you under the bus. And I don't have enough listeners at all to do that, but highly recommend going to London. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and it was, I think a great experience, um, overall and would, would love to go back beautiful city, old and new great people, great food and easy to get in and out of. Like I was dreading the overnight flight. I was dreading the flight coming back, but in, in even going customs to and from, but at, like I've had worse flights going to Florida. I've had worse flights going to Chicago, which makes sense because between O'Hare and Nork international airport, that's the worst flight in the country. Worse flights going to Texas, San Francisco. That was one of the best flying experiences that I've had. I was able to fall asleep going and coming, but I was, you know, still like watching some stuff on my phone, but smooth and Heathrow airport is gorgeous in and of itself. Um, Hope to get back there one day. Uh, Easy flight. No one should be intimidated by going overseas or anything like that. Maybe hopefully a Paris, France or an Italy is up next, but I would, I would definitely go back to London. Super, super impressed. So I'll stop there. We're going to dive quickly into picks for this week, starting with our Thanksgiving game. I don't have the stats. I'll catch up next week. I don't have the stats with me for how I did last week. I don't think it was too good, but I I won't hide it next week. So our, our Thanksgiving Day matchups, the early matchup, Buffalo at Detroit. I will take the Bills, just too much for even a strong Detroit offense. Buffalo will get the win. Giants at Dallas, battling for second place in the NFC East. Dallas coming off of an ass-kicking in Minnesota. They are not that good. And the Giants, with a loss to Detroit, I don't think they're that bad or that representative of a team. But I think Dallas is going to wallop them at 430. And the night game, New England at Minnesota. Uh, New England is offensively challenged. Um, Mac Jones is not looking good. Minnesota got their butts handed to them. Prime time. I think they will get the win over the Patriots. The 1 o'clock games on Sunday. Tampa Bay at Cleveland. I'll take Tampa they're sitting at 5 and 5. I think they're starting to get right a little bit. Cleveland is just holding on until De- until Deshaun Watson comes back next week, but their season is at 4 and 7 more or less over. Cincinnati at Tennessee, good game. Um I was leaning Tennessee originally just given the running game and being at home, uh but I think Cincinnati and that offense I think does enough to get the win. I think they'll control Derrick Henry. They're not going to stop him. But if they can keep him under 100 yards, they have a really good shot at winning. Houston at Miami. Miami all day. Chicago at the Jets. Now Justin Fields is iffy to play in that game. They don't have a great defense. It was actually just announced that um, Zach Wilson is being benched. He's going to be inactive. So Mike White will be the quarterback for the New York Jets with Joe Flacco backing him up. I will take the Jets with a little Mike White magic. Atlanta at Washington. Good for Taylor Heineke and the and the Washington Commanders. I um, Great win last week. They're going to get the win over Atlanta at home. Denver at Carolina. Sam Darnold is starting for the Panthers. It doesn't matter. Denver is not very good, but their defense is going to smother Carolina and they will get an ugly win. And the last one o'clock game, Baltimore at Jacksonville. I will take the Ravens. Starting at four o'clock, the Chargers at the Cardinals. I think Kyler Murray will be back for this game. Chargers. Almost beat on a two-game losing streak to the Niners and the Chiefs. I think they get the win at Arizona. Arizona's defense is not good, and they all but gave up against San Francisco on Monday night. Raiders at Seattle again. I'm I'm pulling for the Raiders. A lot of injuries on offense between Hunter Renfro at receiver and Darren Waller at tight end. They managed to get a win at Denver. Seattle coming off a bye. I do think Seattle gets the win. Rams at the Chiefs. It'll be the Chiefs in a blowout. I don't think Matthew Stafford's playing. He's had a second concussion in just as many weeks, and Cooper Cup is on IR. I mentioned the Saints in San Francisco already, Green Bay at Philadelphia. Every time I get on the try to pick Green Bay and get on the wagon, they let me down. There's no reason to pick them this week against the Eagles, so we'll take them in the Sunday night game. And Monday night, Pittsburgh at Indianapolis. I think the Colts get the win, and I think their defense torments a growing Kenny Pickett. Um, but I just, I think the Jeff Saturday led Colts will just do a little bit more and get a victory and keep their ever so slim playoff hopes alive. But that, uh, is going to conclude our podcast for this week. It's Thanksgiving week. Want to wish everybody out there a happy and healthy Thanksgiving. A lot for there to be a lot for us all to be thankful for between family, friends, good health, um, work, children, activities, staying active, etc. Don't want to go totally off the cliff on that. Uh, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'll just leave everybody with this in terms of what to be thankful for. And again, I'm going back to Jimmy Garoppolo. Anybody that's a Niner fan should be thankful that he decided to re-sign with the team, that he's backing up Trey Lance. Lance. Now, the, the Niners might be 6-4 and four with Lance if, if Jimmy never got hurt. But the fact of the matter is, Lance got hurt. Jimmy came in They're 6-4 and on top of the NFC West. If Brock Purdy was the quarterback or Nate Sudfeld, do you think they'd be 6-4? and No. If Purdy or Sudfeld was the quarterback, do you think they would have traded for Christian McCaffrey? The answer there is no. So we have a very relevant, highly relevant 49er season because of Jimmy playing much better the last four weeks since McCaffrey's been there. And hey, who knows how far this team can go? Um, if they can get into the playoffs, win a game or two, get into the NFC championship game, Super Bowl, who knows, right? You just want to take it to the dance. It's going to make an interesting decision in the off season. If things keep, he's not going to throw four touchdowns every game, but if he keeps playing well and keeps playing clean and they can go 10 and seven, 11 and six, win the West and make some noise, it's going to make a decision for Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch. I'm not saying they're going to trade Trey Lance. They will not do that. But they're going to broach the discussions with Jimmy of, hey, do you want to come back? What would it take? You can compete for the starting role. And who knows? Maybe Jimmy chases the money somewhere else. But it's a good problem to have. I'd rather have two good quarterbacks than just one. Always good to have a backup. So again, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Have a great week and weekend. And we'll talk next week. Take care.